Well, uh, today is the second Sunday of Lent and the second Sunday of our sermon series, Deep Calls Out to Deep. Uh, If you recall from last week, we said that this is uh, a nod to Psalm 42, where the psalmist um, seems to be speaking from a place of like desperation of sorts, like that, that moment when the depth of you is looking for the depth of something else, whether that be the the depth of you crying out for the depth of God or the depth of you crying out for um, the depth of this this life that God is inviting us into or the depth of yourself searching for an ever-deepening depth within yourself. Um, And so this is our our lens that we're we're approaching the the scriptures through this season. this, this idea of deep calling out to deep as we're journeying into an ever deepen, deepening understanding of who God is, of this life that God invites us into, and even into a deeper, deepening understanding of who we are uh, in our own flesh uh, as an individual. Um, all throughout this series then too, we said um, that we'll have a sermon response ritual, which will involve a, a stone out of a, a container And again, the idea is here that each week we're taking a stone out, going deeper and deeper. Uh, And each week a a question at the end of our sermon will be paired with the the rock. And uh, it's meant to be a reminder throughout the week of the question and allow it to to work on us uh, a bit. So that's where we're headed this morning. And as we uh, get ready for that, um, would you join me in a word of prayer? Loving God. We are grateful for this chance to to be together. God, we're grateful for the gift of technology and the chance to to see one another, um, to laugh with one another, to pray with one another. Um, God, we uh, confess this great mystery that even though we may be uh, separated in our own homes, that your spirit um, meets us where we are and unites us and connects us and brings us together. And for that, God, we're grateful. And as we turn to the scriptures now, God, we uh, acknowledge that that your spirit is among us, and we ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us and shape us and form us into the image of Jesus. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I have a confession to make. Um, If you haven't picked up on this yet, I'm I'm not uh, a real, like, high-energy sort of guy. Um, Now, that's not to say that I'm not, like, uh, motivated or passionate or driven. It's just that my, my passion, my motivation, my drive looks a little bit different than somebody that can go hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month. Um, a helpful uh, analogy that I've clung to over the last few years has been um, I'm a bit more of a crock pot than I am a microwave. Um, so you have a microwave, right? You stick your, your food in it, you punch a few numbers, and Within a few seconds or minutes, you have this final product, right? It's ready, ready to go. And then you have a crock pot, right? You take all the ingredients, you put it in the crock pot, you, uh, you let it simmer, you let it marinate together, you let it slow roast, and after some hours, you have your final product. That's a bit more how I, I function in this world, right? It takes me a little bit longer to, to process, to think, to put together something. And for uh, a good chunk of my life, like, I thought that there was something wrong with me. <laughs> I, I would look at people who were, like, high-energy people who could go hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month. And I would, I would think that that's what was normal, and I would, look, I would feel bad about myself. But after a few years of, like, some pretty intentional self-discovery, 
I began to realize like that's just how I'm wired. And I began to realize that like there's other people that are wired like me. And throughout this process of self-discovery, um, I discovered that other people like me wake up with this acute sense of like how much energy they have to use for the day. Like almost like I have a gas gauge that tells me how much energy I have for the day. And with every interaction and with every task that I approach, like I can feel that gas gauge go down like you're driving across the country, right? Um, now, because I want to be a, a functioning human being, uh, I have to, uh, I've gotten pretty good at like gauging how much energy an interaction or a task will take because like when it hits zero, like the lights are on, but no one's home, right? So I have to like figure this out and I, I begin to like plan my day to, to give my best energy to the specific interactions or tasks that, that need them that are at hand for the day. Um, so my, 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 my MO towards life tends to be this like posture of self-preservation, of preserving my own energy to make sure that like I don't run out um, and that I have the energy that I need to, to do what I need to do throughout the day. But because it's life, occasionally we get curveballs thrown at us, right? <laughs> and I can't approach or I can't schedule out every second, every interaction, every task throughout every day of my life. And occasionally... Some, some unexpected surprise pops up. Well, one of the unexpected surprises that often pops up in life, or, time, or, or from time to time, is an uh, unexpected knock on our door. <laughs> now, because we live in a parsonage that's very obviously connected to a church, uh, from time to time, uh, someone will uh, unexpectedly knock on our door. Um, now these are often one of our neighbors, and um, uh, they're... For whatever reason, like they've hit a difficult season of life and they're looking for some sort of uh, help as they journey throughout life and are asking if we can do that. And so on like the one hand, I'm really grateful for that because like what a gift, right, um, to be able to, to journey with somebody. But on the other hand, uh, when I hear that knock, it's like a, a bit of a nuclear reactor is going off and these flashing lights of like warning, 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 because I don't know who's standing behind that door. I don't know what their story is and I don't know what is going to be asked of me. And it feels like this energy reserve is in deep crisis at this moment. Uh, I'm currently reading a book uh, called Tattoos on the Heart by uh, Father Greg Boyle. He's a Jesuit priest who lives in Los Angeles and he's the the, the founder of Homeboy Industries, which is like one of the largest gang intervention organizations uh, in the world. And uh, he begins uh, telling a story, and he says that a typical Saturday for him, uh, he has, uh, he's doing mass in these um, probation camps in the area, uh, typically to, to kids from his neighborhood. And then his afternoons are filled with things like quinceaneras and baptisms uh, for people in the neighborhood. But he said he has a precious half hour in between. And so one specific Saturday, he's, he's in his office, and he loves to, to go through the day's mail in this half hour. So he's there for about 15 minutes. He has a baptism coming up, and in walks a woman by the name of Carmen. Now, he knows Carmen. He's familiar with her. Like, she hangs out on the street often. Um, she's someone who's known for her interaction with gangs, her interaction with drugs, her interaction with some solicitation sort of activities. And she walks in and this anxiety grows within him of like, I have 15 minutes. I don't know if I have time for this, right? She sits down, she says, I need help and starts talking. And then about halfway through, he said like, everything changes. She says, you know, I, I grew up Catholic. I actually went to Catholic school. 
I, after I graduated from Catholic schools, the first time I ever did drugs, and I've been trying to stop ever since. She sits back and leans her head against the wall and looks up and says, I am such a disgrace. He writes about that saying, suddenly her shame met mine. For when Carmen walked through that door, I had mistaken her for an interruption. <laughs> when people knock on our door, um, <laughs> I have that same sort of uh, temptation, if you will. Um, but maybe worse than viewing them as an interruption, I, I have this temptation to view them as a depletion. But I think behind whatever need or request that these people have when they come and knock on our door, they're just like each and every one of us, longing to be seen. But to, be, to, but to see someone requires that like, we give a bit of ourselves, right? When I say to like, see someone, I don't mean in like, a, a superficial way, like to see that there's somebody at the door. It doesn't mean to see them as an interruption, to see them as a depletion, to see them as uh, their, their need or their want in that moment. But it means to like see them fully and wholly, to see their wants, to see their desires, to see their dreams, to see their humanity, to see this image of God reflecting back to the image of God within me. To see them wholly and fully requires that I give a bit of myself. But I'm sure that you know this, right? Like if you have uh, a parent in your life or uh, children in your life or uh, a spouse or a neighbor or coworker or that particular cousin with their outlandish and wild conspiracy theories every Thanksgiving. Like if you have these people in your life, to see them fully, you know that it requires that you give a bit of yourself. But if you yourself have ever been seen, you know that to be seen is to be known and to be known is to be loved. And so to see someone is like the greatest gift that we can ever give someone. But it requires that we give a bit of ourselves. So then, uh, it probably shouldn't come as any surprise to us that in a moment when Jesus is talking to his disciples about what it means to follow him, what it means to live out this way of being human that he's invited us into, it should be no surprise to us then that when Jesus is talking about this, that he says that it requires that we give a bit of ourselves in the process. So the story comes from uh, Mark chapter 8, 31 to 38. Um, but immediately following that comes a story that we talked about a few weeks ago um, on Tempta or, uh, uh, Transfiguration Sunday. And so Jesus is with his disciples and he says, um, who do people say that I am? Like he's been around for a while. He's been disrupting the, the status quo. He's been this renegade rabbi and teacher. And he wants to get a, a pulse for where things are at. And so his disciples say a few different ideas. And then he leans in and gets a little more intimate, a little more personal and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, his right-hand man, stands up. And you can imagine all the other disciples are like, what's Pete going to say? What's Pete going to say, right? And Peter stands up and says, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been hoping for, waiting for, praying for, the one who will redeem, restore, free, and liberate us. And then the story takes a very strange turn. So Mark tells us in chapter 8, verse 31, then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the who's who of the day, and be killed after three days, or, and, and be killed and after three days rise again. 
He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So there's this very beautiful, intimate, personal moment with his disciples where Peter calls him the Messiah. And then Jesus goes on to describe this path that would lie ahead for him. And this path involves suffering. It involves rejection. It involves a humiliating, painful, shame-filled sort of death. And then like being raised from the dead. Now, Peter uh, has this strange sort of response to Jesus, and it's strange because he has just acknowledged and confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, but, but Peter takes Jesus off to the side, and you can imagine that he says something along the lines of like, Jesus, your Messiahship, um, I, I appreciated what you said over there. Like, that's all real good stuff about, you know, suffering, rejection, dying, all of that, like that way of being Messiah, that's great. Are you stuck on that? Are you settled on that? Because, you know, me and the boys, we, uh, we had some different ideas of what it could look like to be Messiah, right? And we quickly get the sense that, like, Peter has a different view, a different understanding of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, right? Um, it probably looks a bit more like the would-be Messiahs of the day that come with a conquering uh, force of, of war and violence rather than one who will suffer and be rejected and die, But Jesus, we're told, turns and looks at his disciples while he's still talking to Peter, which means he's making a public spectacle of of Peter here, right? says, get behind me, Satan, for you have set your mind on human things, not on divine things. This is like one of those great mic drop moments of Jesus. You have set your mind on human things, not on divine things. But what does this mean? Well, I think uh, we get a good glimpse at what the human things are here, right? Peter seems to have some sort of objection with the way that Jesus wants to be the Messiah. But think about it. Like, Peter here has just confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, which is a way of saying, like, he's hitched his wagon to Jesus. Like, he's put all of his uh, eggs in this basket. Like, he has, he has fully committed himself to, to uh, Jesus being the Messiah. But he probably thought that this meant that Jesus would, like, um, overcome Rome, overcome all of this oppression, and begin to like take its place as the rightful ruler, right? And Peter, being his right hand man, would continue to be his right man, right hand man, and still have all of this authority and privilege. But when Jesus presents a different way of being Messiah, Peter asks this question: Well, how does this impact me? <laughs> because if you're gonna die. Like, I've hitched my wagon, my, my cart to this wagon. Like, what, how does this impact me? This seems to be a question of self-preservation. And it seems as though for Jesus, this, this move, this impulse towards self-preservation is what it means to set our mind on human things. Uh, it's interesting. We've been in uh, this pandemic for a year now, right? And very early on, um, some of the the scientists and medical experts uh, began to tell us that there were a few things that we could do to prevent the spread of this virus, right? One of those was to wear a mask. And it's really interesting, like the the science behind the mask says it's not so much like about preventing things from coming in, right? Um, But it's more about preventing things from going out. Which means that like the primary purpose of a mask isn't for my sake, but it's for everybody else's sake. Now, um, 
very early on it appeared that not everybody was like on uh, game for wearing masks, right? And I'm sure that some people had good reasons, right? Like if you have breathing issues, like double layers over your mouth and nose probably is a, a bit difficult to breathe. But some of the loudest voices said, that's an infringement on my personal right. Now think about this. A mask isn't for the person wearing it. A mask is for everybody else around them, which means that it takes this thing that's about we and made it about me. It was a move about self-preservation. And this is what Jesus calls setting our mind on human things. But what about the divine things? Well, Jesus continues on here. And Mark tells us that Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? So we ask the question, what does it mean to set our mind on divine things? Well, Jesus lays it out right here. To set our mind on divine things means to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to follow Jesus, and to lose our lives. See, to set our mind on divine things doesn't mean that we have this impulse towards self-preservation. But to set our mind on the divine things means that we, we have this impulse towards self-sacrifice. Um, that we, we begin to make this move from me to we. Um, because self-sacrifice is hardly ever for like our own sake. But self-sacrifice is almost always for the sake of others. Self-sacrifice is almost always for the greater good or the common good or the collective good. Self-preservation wants to be about me, but self-sacrifice wants to move to we. Self-preservation wants to be about the individual good, but self-sacrifice begins to think about the collective sort of good. Self-preservation might ask, how does this impact me? But self-sacrifice asks, how does this impact we? Now here's the, the ironic thing about like self-sacrifice and the pursuit of the, the collective common greater good. And that is that my good is caught up in our good. <laughs> that, that I am inextricably bound to who we are as a people and my flourishing is caught up in our flourishing as a people. That, uh, that, that me is caught up in we and as we go, so does, bear with me, me go, right? I think uh, the prophet Jeremiah speaks to this idea in uh, Jeremiah 29 when, when he says that, when he's talking to the exile, the Jewish exiles, and he says, to seek the prosperity, the shalom, the flourishing, the well-being of the city that you find yourself in. For in its shalom, in its prosperity, in its flourishing, in its well-being, you will find your own. Me is inextricably caught up in we. And I can't help wonder if this is what Jesus means when he says that those who lose their life for his sake and for the sake of the gospel will find it. Or will, will, will save it. 
Like when we lose our life, when we, when we lose this me-centric perspective, when we lose this impulse towards self-preservation, when we move beyond an individual good and begin to, to step into the collective good, when we move into a we-centric world, when we begin to step into what Paul describes as the one new humanity that is joining with Christ in the redemption of all things, it's this move from me to we that and somehow is actively part of the saving that we are being invited into. And ironically, like self-preservation actually tends to lead to its own downfall because when, when it's me versus you, we're divided and we end up losing. But when it's me and you together, that becomes we and we can gain so much more. So we have these impulses uh, within us, this, this impulse towards self-preservation. But it seems as though like, to follow Jesus means less about self-preservation and more about self-sacrifice. Which brings us to our rock for today. Um, and our question for today is, what, what lures us towards self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice? Like, what compels us what draws us to this me-centric perspective rather than this we-centric perspective? What draws me towards an individual good rather than a, a, a collective good? What, what draws me to ask the question, how does this impact me, rather than asking the question, how does this impact we? Now, I think that this is a, a question that all of us will have to wrestle with this, past, or this coming week. But as I've sat with it, I, I can't help but wonder if the thing that draws us towards self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice is somehow connected to the, the, the story, the narrative, the script that we, we live our life by. Um, so uh, for most of us on this call, like uh, we've been born and raised in, in America, right? The, the U.S. of A., right? Which means that uh, we are good, red-blooded Americans and either implicitly or explicitly picked up this, this narrative, this story, the script of the American dream, right? Which is like you can become a self-made person. If you work hard, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, like you can achieve the things that you want to achieve. And I think that there's some good with with that perspective of working hard and achieving that where you're working for. But oftentimes what comes with this is a mindset of scarcity that says that like, if you succeed, that there's less success for me. It views the world as a pie. And if you get a piece of pie, that means less pie for me. And so of course that leads to a perspective of self-preservation, right? It leads to like not just seeking success for myself, but maybe even your downfall because your downfall leads to the potential of my own success. And I can't help but wonder if maybe there's a better narrative story script to live by. That's not the American dream, but maybe it's God's dream that's often called the kingdom of God. And rather than having a, a mindset of scarcity, the kingdom of God seems to have a mindset of abundancy. It has at it this, this renegade rabbi who goes and takes loaves of fishes and bread and, and, and is able to feed the thousands with it. It's, it's not a perspective that says that, that, that the resources in this world are a pie, but it says that like we're swimming in the resources, we're swimming in the pie itself. 
that all around us are the resources that we can draw from and tap into. And so, of course, this means that we can self-sacrifice, that we can give of ourselves. Now, this doesn't mean we don't have boundaries. This doesn't mean people can take advantage of us. This doesn't mean we can't say no. Um, I think we see all of those things with Jesus. Um, but it does mean that we begin to stretch our, our perspective. It means that we begin to, to think a little less about me-centric and more we-centric. To move from the individual good to the collective good. That we move from self-preservation to self-sacrifice. And as we do so... Um, I think we can echo the words of Jesus one more time, that if we lose ourselves, if we lose our life, if we move from me to we, if we get caught up in this interdependence, uh, this inescapable bound of me and you and we and all of this together, then somehow we'll, we'll find our life and we'll save it. Let's pray. Loving God, we give you thanks for the, uh, the example of Jesus who, who moved past self-preservation towards self-sacrifice, who moved from um, the pursuit of an individual good into a collective good. And God, while that's a, a really stretching and challenging example to follow, um, we know that somehow, mysteriously, divinely, that's, that's where we find our life. And so, God, uh, we ask that uh, your spirit would be with us this week. Uh, help us to, to ask this question of what lures us towards self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice. Um, help us to, to see the places in our life, the stories, the scripts, the narratives that are, are pulling us towards self-preservation. And give us the courage that we need to begin to to step into a perspective of self-sacrifice. And as we do, um, we trust that, uh, as Jesus said, that we'll find our life and that we'll be saved in the process. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.